Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. It was the summer of 1974. I was a young reporter in my first year with the Evening Herald. Every day back then, in mid-morning, the newsroom would empty once the first edition was gone. Most of the reporters went for tea or coffee. One or two headed for their first pint of the day. I was the cubbest of cub reporters, so I stayed behind. One morning, as the others left, I saw my news editor take a call. He hung up and looked around for a reporter. And there I was. Young fella, he called, go up to the Gresham Hotel. Someone says John Wayne is there. It was only 22 years since the release of The Quiet Man, the film which made John Wayne a hero and a legend in Ireland. This was pretty big news. Why did a cub reporter get the job? I suspect it was largely because the whole thing seemed unlikely. Big movie stars didn't show up in Dublin hotels and give an interview to the first reporter who asked, did they? So send the cub. At least, it'll get him out of the office for a while. I strolled up to the Gresham with our photographer, the late Eamon Gilligan. We headed straight to the dining room, having been told that John Wayne was having breakfast there. And so he was. There was no security, no minders, no handlers. Nor was there any point in beating about the bush. And so I walked over and said, Excuse me, Mr Wayne. My name is Paddy Murray and I'm with the Evening Herald newspaper. I was wondering if I could have a word. He looked up and smiled. Sit down, young feller, he said, and have breakfast with me. And I did, and so did Eamon. So, I guess you're a reporter, he said. And who do you work for? The Evening Herald, I reminded him. And do you like working for them, he asked me. I told him I did, as it became clear that it was he who was interviewing me. He asked a few more questions. Did I go to the movies? What movies did I like? To which I, of course, replied, Westerns. Eventually, I got to ask him about Brannigan, the movie he was making in London. It was a part he chose having turned down the role of Dirty Harry, subsequently taken by Clint Eastwood. He didn't know Dublin had a famous detective called Brannigan, known to one and all as Lugs. He laughed. If I'd known that, I might have called myself Lugs in the movie. We chatted about the quiet man and his memories of making that classic movie in the West. Ireland is the most beautiful country in the world for making films, he said. I would dearly like to make another film here. But it would have to be personal. He reminded me that his ancestors came from somewhere in County Cork. We talked to of his admiration for Richard Nixon, a fine American, he said. He had ended the Vietnam War when two other popular presidents couldn't. A man who had done nothing wrong, he said, just weeks as it happens before the disgraced president quit. What had him in Dublin, I wondered. He had come, he told me, to meet his good friend, Lord Killannan. And when are you meeting him? I'm not, he said. Turns out he's in Zurich. So on we chatted as he tucked into two fried eggs, a half a dozen rashers, a few sausages, tea and toast. He was, it has to be said, a thorough gentleman, and made sure there was tea and toast for us too. As I stood to thank him, deadlines, you know, we could have chatted all day otherwise, he asked me where he might get a bonnie hat and a blackthorn stick. Just up from the main door of the Gresham back then, where Toddy's Bar now is, there was a souvenir shop. And so John and I, he told me he didn't mind me calling him John, walked together up O'Connell Street to the astonishment of the city's citizens.
Eamon snapped away with his camera, taking photographs of the movie star and the cub reporter as wide-eyed Dubliners looked, stared and stepped forward to shake the hand of a man who was then and is now a movie legend. And while John managed to get his souvenirs, I have none. Because I have no idea where the picture of the two of us on O'Connell Street is now. The Herald published a photograph of John Wayne surrounded by Dublin fans, but not the one of him and me together. And sadly, John never got to make another movie in Ireland. He died less than five years after that day we met in the Gresham. But at least I have the memory. And so if the name John Wayne ever comes up in conversation and I'm asked if I ever met him, I can reply smugly, met him? Should we have breakfast together? My grandmother Mary loved to walk. She was originally advised by her GP that walking was the best way to keep varicose veins caused by pregnancy under control. And like most of her generation, she took the instructions of a doctor very seriously. But it was more than that. Walking became her comfort and solace, one of the few things she had for herself. Her life was hard. She'd lost a man she waited 34 years to find, suddenly to a medical misadventure after only five years of marriage. He was buried alongside their son, who died in infancy. So many dreams shattered. She was left with her two other small boys to care for, my father and uncle, under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Mary and her boys moved in with her mother-in-law above the family shop on the quays in New Ross and in between the work she walked. Almost a lifetime later, when I was seven years old, my father's job with IBM transferred him to Paris and so it was that in 1982 we moved lock stock to the City of Lights. This was a time before city breaks and just before Ryanair. The excitement and adventure of it was visceral. Once we were settled, my grandmother was to come and stay with us for six months or so. She was 77 at the time and hadn't travelled much during her life, but she was always excited by new experiences, and once there was a church nearby and plenty of pavement to pound, she would be happy. My father collected her from the airport, and as they emerged from an underpass into the city and Paris rose up in all its full heart-stopping glory, my granny drew a sharp intake of breath and said, Oh, Tom, I had no idea. The western suburb of Garsh where we lived was expansive and as my grandmother spoke not a word of French we were a bit worried about her continuing her daily walks alone but she said she'd be fine. She'd stick to one side of the road, she promised. She'd never cross over, she'd count the lights she passed and take four lefts until she was back where she started. This logical delineation also took in the church so it seemed foolproof. Until one day it wasn't and my granny didn't return home by her usual hour. Three hours later, she still hadn't reappeared. My mother took the car out and traced her pre-authorised route, stopping at the church to see if maybe there was an unscheduled Stations of the Cross or a funeral Mary had thought wasn't well attended enough, but there was no sign of her. We started to worry. Pre-mobile phones and Google Maps, people really could get lost very easily. I wondered where my beloved granny could have gone. 
I imagined her starting a new life without us and that maybe in ten years' time I'd spot her in a cafe in the Marais, looking chic in her Parisian belted coat, sipping coffee, smoking goloise and speaking perfect French. Would she recognise me? Would she want to come home? Would she wink and say, Mon Dieu, you finally found me? That evening our phone rang. My grandmother had been found safe and well. She had broken the golden rule and crossed the road, a striking purple hydrangea having caught her eye. One thing she loved, almost as much as walking, was a good cutting from a plant. She could have propagated an entire botanic garden from covertly clipped cuttings. Such were her green fingers. But having crossed the road, then she stayed on the wrong side. Two more wrong turns and she was well and truly lost. She kept walking, certain that she'd see something familiar soon, but she was walking deeper into the suburbs and evening was drawing in. Eventually she knocked on a door quite some distance from our house. A couple invited her in. They had no English, she had no French. At a loss they handed her the phone book. Our arrival in Paris only a few months earlier had coincided with the publication of the latest white pages and as good fortune and my mother's unfailing organisational skills would have it, we were the only Dunphys in it. We were so relieved to have her back. The kettle was boiled, the tea was quickly swapped for a generous dry sherry, as we all speculated what might have happened had we not been in the phone book. Mary was as stoic as ever. She hadn't really been worried at all, and said despite the language barrier, the couple were lovely and made a decent cup of tea for French people. Mary kept to one side of the street after that, and six months later the beautiful hydrangea had taken root in our own Parisian garden. Forty years on, I like to think it's still there, and that maybe many other passers-by have taken cuttings from it, but hopefully without putting their family's hearts crossways with a simple wrong turn. When Johnny Boyle, the roadman, was in the horrors from drink, he'd come to my mother for sobering up with mugs of sweet black tea. Johnny would jauntily describe his drinking bout as a spree, but we knew it was his attempt to delay his return to a lonely cottage after a day's work scraping the roads for the county council. Only a pounce of stray cats, all generically named Bucko, waited for him at his front door, spitting and crowling their hunger for haphazard scraps. He drank mainly in Ned Ryan's pub in Bridge Street Care, where Ned's sisters, Sis and Kate, kept a formidable bottle of holy water under the counter to sprinkle on drunken customers as they staggered from the premises. An extra dousing was flicked in Johnny's direction because he was an apostate, one of the very few who vigorously declared his agnosticism in that era. As he lordly proclaimed himself, he never darkened the door of church, chapel or meeting house. Normally benign towards those who did, he was occasionally known to declare that it was all a racket from the Pope down. 
During his sojourns at our fireside, my mother would question him about his view of the afterlife. This was Johnny's cue to proclaim the smattering of Shakespeare he must have picked up in Bellalubi school. My good woman, he'd preface his quotation, tis the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. As his rich voice rumbled into our kitchen with the gravitas of an abbey actor, I felt so privileged that Johnny had selected our house as his refuge. Despite his disavowal of religion, he also liked to quote from the Gospels. And when describing something that was bound to fail, he'd sadly reference the fate of the house built on sand, an edifice that, unlike the house built on rock, could not withstand the battering of wind and rain. Apart from his fireside philosophising, he also endeared himself to me by taking a great interest in my schoolwork. Get out your satchel, young one, he'd instruct, and show me all the lessons you learned today. He listened with such patience to my reading as I stumbled over the words describing how little Hans saved Harlem by bravely keeping his arm in the dam against the freezing water. While he indulged the certainties in my catechism about how God made the world and how our purpose in life was to know, love and serve him, Johnny delighted in Robert Browning's poem, The Pied Piper of Hamelin. He identified with the entrancing power of the piper and loved the lines telling how to blow the pipe his lips he wrinkled and green and blue his sharp eyes twinkled. He loved to watch too as I uncorked my ink bottle and carefully dipped in the nib to practice my handwriting staying so faithfully between the red and blue lines of the copybook. The transcription headline was usually an improving maxim and Johnny loved the idea that the full cup needs a steady hand. That's a good one, he'd say. I like that one. As he raised his mug to his lips with a very unsteady hand. I was very weak at sums and wanted to skip over the dreaded arithmetic. But Johnny was a whiz at working out the conundrums that seemed so senseless to me. How to convert statute acres to Irish acres or calculate the yield from a field of turnips. I did enjoy, however, the day I told him about fractions, cutting up a golden wonder potato to solemnly illustrate for him how everything had two halves but four quarters. He saw my pleasure in this bit of unexpected prowess and feigned incomprehension or mixed up the information until I patiently repeated the lesson by cutting up more potatoes. I didn't know then that this wonderful old roadman struggling through a lonely life with the comfort of a few pints was ensuring that I fixed the information in my head and came into a sense of my own ability. The lessons over and the tea drank, Johnny always instructed me to stick at the books, young man. We'd watch from the doorstep as he'd stagger off on his bicycle, struggling up Tom Coffey's hill, falling now and then into the ditch. Thanks to that visionary minister for education, Donna O'Malley, and his Revolutionary Education Act of 1967, making secondary school available to all free of charge, 
I was able to stick to the books in a way I suspect Johnny would have loved to as well. I can just picture him in a tutorial discussing the finer points of existentialism or Aristotle's notion of the good life. When introduced to sociological concepts of status or social stratification, he'd have the insider's track, expert by experience. In my day, it was a term of insult to be described as one of O'Malley's, the implication being that we were imposters there by the skin of our teeth. Well, I'm very proud to be one of O'Malley's and I'm also well aware of my debt of gratitude to Johnny for all the encouragement. Matryoshka. In her portly figure eight, the old grandmother contained generations. Her body a bowling pin, in her pink hand a rolling pin, and the other one flat against her hip. One curl of grey at her temple, and a red kerchief knotted under her chin. Cracked at the waist, she gave way to her husband, his thick black handlebar moustache hiding a grin. He must have been the younger of the pair. The generations opened out from them, a girl with yellow hair in braids, glossy as a loaf of challah, roses blooming across her green pinafore, the neat pursed V of her heart-shaped mouth. She opened on to a boy with fingers red and sticky stuck with jam. They broke upon one another, stripped all the way down, to the kernel of creation, unbelievably a hard little nut of a girl just born, the pale serene face framed in ruffles, her eyes lidded little half-moons. She slept through it all, not just the bow's violent break, but everyone, everyone devastated around her on the ground. An Englishman's home may be his castle, but for this Scotsman, home was for many years a tenement. I remember trying to explain this to a group of Irish friends. You were raised in a tenement. Go away. I might just as well have told them I was raised in a skip. For dubs raised in the folklore of urban deprivation, the word tenement carries connotations of poverty, disease and chronic overcrowding. Small wonder, then, 
but the word still inspires horror long after the worst of the tenements have been demolished. In Scotland, however, tenement remains a neutral term. Edinburgh's original stone tenements, some of them as much as 15 storeys high, date back to the 17th century, and these perhaps were not quite so neutral, especially in terms of sanitation. Chamber pots were routinely emptied from high windows with a warning, Gardi Lou, a corruption of the French guard the low or beware of the water, yelled down to passers-by in the streets below. Not for nothing did Edinburgh earn its olfactory sobriquet Old Reeky, which loosely translates as Dirty Old Town. In 2001, the National Census confirmed that more than half the population of Edinburgh and Glasgow still lived in tenement-style buildings, many of which are resplendent with intricate wrought-iron banisters and ornately tiled staircases. Usually four storeys high, with three houses on each floor and two garden flats, the solid sandstone tenements I was raised in were, to my fond recollection, a model of communal living. There's always a danger of romanticising the past, but such was the bustling vibrancy of tenement life. The sights and sound remain as real to me now as they were half a century ago. The thunderous clang of the stair door slamming, the clatter of bikes, prams and trolleys bumping downstairs, the wobbly crooning of midnight drunks, the banshee howls of mothers calling in their kids for dinner. Naturally, there were challenges to be faced, not least the drudgery of getting up and down the stairs, for there were no lifts in the tenements. Old folks with shopping, mothers with young children, postmen, furniture removers, undertakers, all were faced with the fundamental difficulty of ascending and descending a steep spiral staircase without mechanical assistance. Particularly disadvantaged in this regard were the coal men. Clad in leather waistcoats and strange brimless caps, these exotic armadillo-like creatures would slowly wind their way upstairs, bent double under the weight of a coal bag, almost as big as themselves. The crash and whoosh as they emptied their bags into the coal hole generated a mushroom cloud of dust that coated the furniture and blocked out the sun for days afterwards. Undertakers too had it tough, and a dubious urban mythology arose in which coffins were said to have been dropped downstairs, dislodging the misfortunate occupant in the process. Did it ever really happen? Probably not. But tenement funerals were not exactly delicate affairs. Chimney fires were a common occurrence, but if a house went on fire, the occupants might have to be rescued by extending a ladder. No West Side Story fire escapes in an Edinburgh tenement. The day after, all you would see would be a mound of charred timbers dumped in the street and a gaping black hole in the edifice of the building. Long before the advent of Tesco deliveries, a willing lad could earn a few bob-running errands for elderly tenement dwellers. This, in fact, was my first job. The second was delivering newspapers, and it was light years away from the American scenario where cute kids cycled past white picket fences, merrily tossing papers onto the porch. None of that. You rose at 6.30am to collect your paper bag and raced up and down stairs until the prospect of a well-earned breakfast brought blessed relief. At other times, the young and carefree took to quicker modes of descent, which is to say, 
sliding down the banisters. As kids, we did it all the time, from heights of almost a 100 feet, with the risk of falling and sustaining serious injury ever present, and greatly to the horror of adults who, of course, we cheerfully ignored. Our generation loves to lament the atomization of contemporary society, the isolation in which neighbours rarely connect, the way our children seem to float freely in a formless digital dreamscape. Sociologists call this declinism. Did we really have it any better? Who are we to decide? Life in the tenements was certainly different. Children played on landings without stair gates, courting couples canoodled in darkened stairwells, housewives operated an open-door policy. Loud conversations were conducted from the windows of one block to another. Certainly, people connected, but often the darkness crowded in. You knew the latchkey kids, the ones who suffered at the hands of tough parents, the women who endured violent spouses, the funny folk who needed minding, the families who got hand-me-downs and whip-rounds in time of need. But there was humour too, extraordinary to think of it, that mothers used to throw snacks down to you on the street. Catching skills became paramount. Your hurled snack might end badly, in a hedge, in a puddle, or even, as once happened, a sandwich of mine, driven away on the bonnet of a passing car. Years later, when the first multi-storey flats were built, a Glasgow folk singer wrote a ballad lamenting the loss of this important ritual, entitled, You Canny Throw Pieces Out of Thirty-Storey Flats. Pieces being the Scots word for sandwiches. Whenever I go home, I pass by those tenements, and at times it's a melancholy experience. Robert Louis Stevenson declared his native Edinburgh a dream in masonry and living rock. But these days, the streets of Edinburgh's flatland seem drab and lifeless, the windows unwashed, with draped sheets or old duvies doubling as curtains, the gardens neglected, no flower beds, only clumps of straw grass clogged with litter. I listen for the bustle of tenement life, but hear only snatches of white noise seeping from the open windows of student flats. The bustle stilled by the drumbeat of progress, the tenement dwellers now ensconced in suburban affluence, far from clanging stair doors and the shrieks of children playing from dawn to dusk. Ah, my skyscraper when I live on the 19th floor, but I'm no going out to play on him Cause since we moved to Castle Malcolm wasting away Cause I'm getting one less meal every day Oh, you can't fling pieces in a 20-storey flat When my grandmother and my father's side died suddenly in 2011, I was grief-stricken. We'd been very close. She understood me. She saw me for who I am and didn't want or expect me to change. Grief is a strange thing. She was no longer in my world, yet everything reminded me of her presence. Then came the regrets. Why didn't I visit more? I should have told her more that I loved her, and so on until all I could remember for a while were my regrets. So I made it my business to spend more time with Grandaddy. 
At first I did it for selfish reasons. I didn't want to be consumed by the same regrets I had with Grandmommy. I wanted to spend time for the sake of spending time. Maybe that's not the best reason to spend time with someone you love. I wanted to be closer to him, like I was and am with my other grandfather, but I didn't know how. Grandaddy was a strict, serious, funny man who only used the number of words required and not one more than necessary. I guess that's where Daddy gets it from. Growing up, I respected and loved Grandaddy, but I didn't know how to talk to him. Despite the fact that we both spoke English, we might as well have been speaking two different languages. Compared to his use of language, my words spill out of my mouth with abandon as I try to relay stories and tales using my imagination to conjure images of the past, present and future in my listener. I would often go to visit him. The house was usually full of sons and daughters or grandchildren. The mixture of vices intermingling creating a calm and white noise that would propel me back to my childhood. Despite this, I struggled to find the right words that would allow conversation to flow easily between us. Around this time, I'd also started doing the genealogy of my family. I wanted to see where we'd come from and how far I could go back into the past. And one day, while chatting about it in Grandaddy's house, he took an interest in what I was saying. As he answered my questions, he began to weave his own stories about his past, his upbringing, his life on the road and our culture. Through his stories, his experiences came alive to me. The beauty of travelling from town to town, selling goods at different markets, bartering with local farmers for food in exchange for the tinkering of pots and pans or other work on the farm, and the tragedy of seeing loved ones buried long before their time. He began asking questions of his own about what I'd found and who. We would have long conversations about the family tree, and I saw the pride in him when he talked about his own. Suddenly we'd found a common language. From then on, whenever I would go to visit, we would chat about our family tree. But we expanded our common language in time. We'd talk about the movies we enjoyed, like the old western starring John Wayne, and whatever else came to mind. Over the years, I would fill him in on what I was up to, and while at times I didn't visit as often as I should, when I did visit, I was glad I did. I began to see a different side of him. In 2017, I went to America for the summer as part of a leadership programme the first Irish traveller to ever be on the programme in its history. Before I went, I told my grandfather all about it. America, he said. Won't you make sure and come home now? While I was gone, Grandaddy's health took a turn for the worst, and he'd had to have surgery due to complications from his diabetes. When I returned, he wasn't the same. He'd become more frail and was using a wheelchair. Over the following months, his health went downhill, and he was in and out of hospital. In late February of 2018, before heading away to Clare for work, I called in to see him. We chatted for a while, and when I left, I told him I loved him and would see him soon. Due to bad weather, our team came home from Clare early. The 1st of March was the first anniversary of the recognition of traveller ethnicity in Ireland, and that morning we got news that Grandad had only a few days to live. I sat in my apartment, hoping he would last out the storm so I could go visit him. Around three that day, something told me I needed to get into the car and go and see him. Twenty minutes later, Grandaddy died peacefully at home, surrounded by all of us. While I was devastated by the loss, I have no regrets. I am lucky. 
I got to know my grandfather twice, once as a child and the second as an adult. Europe. It was autumn on walkabout in Bavaria. Plum trees, pears. With the last of my cash, I bought potato bread and ate it with some leverwurst. In Freiburg, I starved for three days and lay on the river bank, watching my island float far above me, a dark shape in the blue vault. Some day I would surface there. In the hostel I met another journeyman, a girl from Hamburg, aged 14. I marvelled at her daring, her empty blue eyes, her sense of being completely there. I imagined her in the 14th century, in a flat-chested velvet brocade dress, being married off to an ancient creaking Teutonic knight who took her to his Baltic castle, where, surrounded by Slavs and Letts, she would give birth to a horde of men, philosophers, warriors, engineers and hunters. On our last day we shook hands on a bridge across the river. She proffered her cheek to kiss. Then she turned to the east. On this morning's programme we heard My Friend the Duke by the late Paddy Murray whose death was announced this week and we rebroadcast that in tribute to Paddy. We also had A Wanderer in Paris by Maya Dunphy. Margaret Galvin brought us Johnny Boyle's lessons. We also heard Matryoshka, a poem by Grace Willens. Tenements was by Bert Wright. Granddaddy was from Kathleen Murphy. And Europe, a poem by Michael O'Loughlin. The music you heard this morning included the Kerry dance sung by John McCormack. Non je ne regrette rien was of course from the little sparrow, Edith Piaf. A joke of this was from the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Maycomb. Rennie Aubrey gave us a music box. And the GDP song was sung by Adam McNaughton. You also heard the main title from the film The Searchers, composed by Max Steiner and sung by the Sons of the Pioneers. Also, on the back of what you've heard this morning, you might be interested in these two poetry books. The Limit of Light is by Grace Willens and is published by the Gallery Press. And Michael O'Loughlin's most recent poetry collection is called Liberty Hall, and that's published by New Island Books. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Michelle Gibson, and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.